0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Be delivered void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. For the last couple of years, the armed forces in the United States has had a problem. They can't seem to find enough soldiers. Good afternoon and welcome to the first personnel subcommittee hearing of the 118th Congress. I am this is not a secret. The Army's missed its recruitment goal by 25 percent. Military leaders went to Congress a few months back to ask for more money to get troops in the door. They talked about doing more intense outreach, telling their story better.
1: Uh, the benefits of military service, what it could provide. Um...
0: And then Senator Tammy Duckworth brought up something else. Why not make it easier for immigrants to join? This year, I'm introducing the Enlist Act Act. This legislation enables the Department of Defense to expand its recruiting pool to include individuals like DACA recipients and other longtime residents of this country who can pass a DOD background check and meet the service's high standards for enlistment. This is the sort of suggestion that makes Sophia Optikar sit up and take notice. Sophia is a sociologist at the City University of New York. She says immigrants have always been a vital part of the military workforce. She's even seen recruiters with camouflage business cards in multiple languages that they can pass out. In military lingo, immigrants are talked about as force
1: multipliers. They often have language skills that are useful, um, and that's that's considered a force multiplier. You're kind of getting more for the price of one. Right now, since the armed services,
0: like every other employer, is facing a labor shortage, it makes a kind of sense that military leaders would want to lean on non citizen soldiers.
1: And now the Pentagon is looking to immigrants. Correspondent Evan Lambert is live for us in Washington. Evan, the goal here is to try to
0: overcome years of recruiting shortfalls. Nicole, essentially, they are saying anything can help the military. It was the Air Force that ramped things up first awarding citizenship to a handful of basic training graduates just this spring. These are
1: Air Force trainees who became citizens. They came from Cameroon, Jamaica, Kenya, the Philippines, Russia, and South Africa.
0: I was surprised at how high-touch recruitment seemed to be. Like, there was this one recruit to the Army Reserves, Asmita Bidari, who spoke to the Associated Press. She's Nepalese. And she talked about how she was in a Nepalese Facebook group for people in America who had, who had come from Nepal and
1: ran into a recruiter there. Yeah, it does seem like, um, I mean, it's it's part of kind of the the larger picture of, of recruitment that is really intense. Um, like part of it is recruiters who you know, build relationships with ever younger youth through video games. And so this is part of that work, right? You have, you know, you try to get the gamers, you try to get immigrants. Yeah,
0: it's like there's this line between between being familiar and being predatory a little bit, I guess. And I don't know when you cross well, it. I think that <laughs> you cross it immediately. It's interesting because as I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking about what this increased immigrant recruitment meant. And I realized that this renewed, this renewed push, it kind of also allows the U.S. to tell a story about itself as a generous benefactor, you know, recruiting people from other countries, giving them the gift of citizenship, that kind of thing.
1: Is that actually how it works? I completely agree that that's how it works. I think that's 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 a huge factor here just in terms of like creating a particular image of United States and uh, one that, you know, papers over a lot of, you know, realities of both military labor and what it's like to be in the military and also what the military does. Military members that are getting naturalized are pretty often put right in the front row of any naturalization ceremony. And so you see them in all the photos. It's, it's a very powerful kind of symbolic element.
0: Today on the show, what a renewed push to enlist immigrant soldiers will really mean for military recruitment and for the soldiers themselves. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. real world results that's sap business ai
1: judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy The Chumba life is for everybody.
0: So go to chumpacasino.com and play over 100 casino style games. Join
1: today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumpaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So immigrants have always been an important part of the U.S. military. Since when? Can you just explain
1: their importance? Yeah, sure. Since the Revolutionary War, Hmm. like the state militias had, you know, people born um, in Europe um, who were fighting in them. And throughout U.S. history, immigrants played a very important role as just like military labor. And, for example, in the 19th century, you see um, immigrants recruited in the military using cash bounties um and as many as like half uh in some of those conflicts as many as half of uh, the troops were foreign born wow And their recruitment allowed um the u.s to avoid drafts
0: is that kind of always how it works like the the recruitment of people from outside of the country allows you to keep other people at home
1: it often works that way it wasn't necessarily that they were recruiting people from outside of the u.s they were Immigrants already in the U.S. that were often, you know, pretty precarious economically and socially, and were more likely uh, to accept these cash bounties because they really needed them. Um, And then, if enough of them did so, then you could forego a draft, which protects the native-born folks from having to serve in the military. That is a common pattern throughout U.S. history.
0: Talk to me about modern day efforts to ramp up recruitment of immigrants. Like My understanding is that 2008 marked a really big change in terms of how immigrants could enter the military and what that could look like for
1: them. Several interesting things happened around then. So until right about you know, 2007, 2008, getting citizenship through the military is actually like quite difficult because the immigration process, for anyone who's gone through it or see a loved one go through it, it's a lot of paperwork, appointments, fees. It's very hard to combine with military life where you are moving around. You may be abroad. You um, It's hard to take a day off and drive six hours to a USCIS office for an interview. In reality, like a lot of people just had to wait until they were done hmm. um, with their service to actually even go through it. And then you see right around then, policies are developed and put in place to facilitate the naturalization process, which is also then you can use for recruitment and say like, hey, look, there's a new program called Naturalization at Basic Training, where you build in the naturalization process into the very, very intense basic training. So you're
0: collapsing something that could take
1: years into
0: something much shorter?
1: Months, yeah. Then what would happen for a lot of people, not everybody, But you would have, at basic training graduation, you would also have a naturalization ceremony.
0: The Marines standing before you today have completed the naturalization process upon arrival at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island, South Carolina. Well, and my understanding is that There were notable success stories that the military pointed to from this program, people who got citizenship while they were in the military and then like went on to be very prominent, like won a silver medal for the United States in the Olympics in Brazil, you know, did things, you know, did things that were that the military pointed to and said, look, we did this.
1: Yes. And. That actually has to do with the second important policy development at this time, and that is the start of the Short-Lived Military Accessions of Vital National Interest Program, MAVNI uh, for short. Um, In that program, it recruited primarily college students and college graduates, people with often advanced degrees who were immigrants, and they were not legal permanent residents. They were actually on temporary visas, usually student visas, sometimes employment visas. In some cases, there were asylum seekers, but the vast majority were foreign students. So you're having people enlist with a master's degree, sometimes with a Ph.D., and it's quite competitive. Like Those immigrants were very interested in enlisting because for them, they are looking at, if I want to stay in the United States... I'm going to hope an employer is going to sponsor my H-1B visa. Then I might wait 20, 25 years to even become a legal permanent residency. And a lot of them may not be successful. And when they enlisted through Mavni, they essentially skipped decades of waiting in the immigration system. And they went from having a student visa to being U.S. citizens, sometimes at the end of basic training. And that ended in 2016, uh, stranding a lot of Mavni applicants in a really stressful legal limbo, where for years, and for some of them it's still ongoing, they're not sure what's going to happen. Some of them have become undocumented because their status has expired. Some of them are worried that they will have to go back to countries like Pakistan, where the fact that they attempted to enlist in the U.S. military is causing their families to be targeted.
0: In 2016, what happened? I mean, obviously Donald Trump was elected. How did he and the people who worked under him see this program of increased military involvement for immigrants?
1: Right, I have to say that it predates Trump a little bit. And in terms of immigration policy in general, there are unfortunately far more continuities between the different administrations than we like to think. Um, What happens in, in... 2016 is there is concern about, you know, security threats through this program. And a lot of the immigrants who enlisted through Mavni are from China um, and other countries, but China was, was a big one. India was another big one. And so they impose really high level security screenings on, on people in this program that are just impossible to pass for immigrants. But then we moved with the Trump election, we do see a change, not just for that program, which ended and you know, it was a limited program, but for immigrants in the military in general. So how the Trump administration imposed a 180 day waiting period before one was allowed to apply for naturalization through the military route. That's like half a year. That puts an end to naturalization and basic training. You can't do that because now you have to wait 180 days. Naturalization rates plummet. And at the same time, you also have in 2017, this is very striking to me, that denial rates for people applying for citizenship through the military are actually higher than for people applying as civilians.
0: Wow. Because, it, I mean, the idea is that you're recruiting immigrants and it's worth it to them to join the military because getting citizenship is easier. You're saying that's not the case.
1: In 2017, the denial rates for the military were higher (laughs) than they were for civilians. So people like immigration attorneys were saying, you're better off applying as a civilian. And that is part of the general criminalization of immigrants in the United States, where you have every part of the immigration process all the way through kind of the last step, becoming a citizen, is really seen as an opportunity by the U.S. government to identify immigrants that it can deport, they're looking at your file and they're looking to find something wrong, a photocopy that looks iffy. You know, people have immigration journeys that last decades through the various statuses and and you know there's paperwork translated from other languages. There's so many things you could find to for a lot of people, their cases are not straightforward. So you that can lead to your case being reviewed for years or it can lead to a denial of naturalization.
0: So how much of this bureaucratic messiness is the Biden administration now trying to unwind? Not enough.
1: (laughs) And it's a good sign um, that the naturalization of basic training program um, has restarted. It doesn't seem to have naturalized too many people at this point, but uh, it is now, again, possible. Given that it exists in a larger system where immigrants are just increasingly criminalized, it's not going to work very well for those people who do want to get citizenship through the military. It's not enough.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID 19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers. All leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blind spot, the plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Today in the Middle East, happens in Ukraine has consequences for what's around AI. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex. But it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters wherever you listen. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of donald trump the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights the supreme court's latest slate of environmental gutting gun safety eviscerating cases on the docket so follow amicus wherever you get your podcasts new episodes dropping every saturday morning
0: You've interviewed 72 people as part of your research, people who joined the military as immigrants. You write about how there's this myth that being in the armed forces will unite people because there's the sameness to being a soldier. But you said that doesn't really happen when you're an immigrant soldier. So how would you how would you characterize what does happen? Like, are they more vulnerable in some way? Because they stand out potentially.
1: Yes, I, I mean the military is I- incredibly hierarchical, and there's research that shows, um, you know, that it's not a colorblind institution in, in in the sense that there is discrimination in promotion. There is discrimination in military justice system. Right, the military has a separate justice system. Immigrants are entering this hierarchy and this system of discrimination. And on top of that, they're not just, you know, racialized in a specific way. They also may not speak English fluently or speak English with an accent, and they stick out and are are seen as by many that they work with and who supervise them as potential threats. Some people manage to use the experience for personal advancement or social mobility in their lives, but these experiences leave certain types of scars for people, uh, even those who ostensibly have the markers of success.
0: One of the people you spoke with was an immigrant from Peru named Miguel. I know he was actually, he was a neighbor of yours, right?
1: Right, yes, he was very generous with his time.
0: How did his experience challenge your assumptions?
1: That was a fascinating interview because like in just one story, He destroyed so many stereotypes that I think are commonly held about immigrants in the military. A lot of our conversation has been about citizenship as an incentive to join the U.S. military. And for people like Miguel, not his real name, by the way, a pseudonym, that was not why he enlisted. He said he didn't even think about it. Hmm. Why did he join? Masculinity had a lot to do with it. It was floundering in college. There was a cool guy in his class who was a veteran, who Hmm. was like a macho man. And, you know, Miguel was at that point in his young life was struggling with um, like what it means to be a man and experiencing certain pressures from male members of his family who had served in the Peruvian military. And he saw that as a way to have an adventure and become a man. And that's not an uncommon experience for men in the military in general. So citizenship was not something that was top of his mind at the time. Even more striking, though, is that he really equivocated about becoming citizens years later. So he was you know, eligible. He could have become a citizen and it took him years of kind of going back and forth thinking about it and not being sure.
0: Why wasn't he certain?
1: He felt a strong attachment to Peru and an identity as an indigenous American in the Greater Americas. And for him becoming a US citizen with this symbolic step that had negative connotations, um, he he spoke about, you know, the role of the US military in South America.
0: In a negative way.
1: In a negative way, even as he was part of it. He had that analysis and and it held him back. Eventually, he did become a U.S. citizen and he was he told me he was proud to be a U.S. citizen. And but it was a whole kind of years of not being sure that he wanted to do it, even as he was a Marine. You've also made it clear that just because you've
0: served in the military, it doesn't mean you're not at risk for deportation. Can you tell me about Jack, one of the people that you spoke to, what his experience says about what it means to serve and how serving won't necessarily spare you from being kicked out of the country?
1: So there are thousands of deported veterans. And I spoke to Jack, who lives in northern Mexico. His story was one that that in in many ways is typical of deported veterans and in other ways is not. So he was another person who actually did not care about getting U.S. citizenship when he enlisted, even though he knew about that incentive. But in his case, he had grown up as a Mexican-American youth being viciously bullied in, you know, predominantly white environment in his school. And that made him not want to become a U.S. citizen for a while. Hmm. And so he, he enlisted for, again, other reasons in his case, primarily economic. He spent um, six years in the military, um, suffered some injuries that continued to affect him, physical injuries. After he separated from the military, he had a drug case. As any immigrant without U.S. citizen, if, if you are convicted of a category of crimes that are called aggravated felony, which is an incredibly wide category, an immigration category of crime, That could be anything from murder to a forged check. If you are convicted of aggravated felony, then you become deportable. So, you know, he got a drug case. He was selling, he was using. He wouldn't tell me and I wouldn't press. At that point, so he was in criminal proceedings and in immigration proceedings at the same time. He did not have enough money to hire lawyers to help him with both. So he chose to spend the limited money he had gathered from his family to pay for an immigration lawyer. Meanwhile, his public defender told him to plead guilty. and He pled guilty in his drug case, Um, and then there was no recourse in the immigration courts because he had pled guilty. And then he was deposited on, you know, the Mexico side of the U.S. border. He didn't grow up there, right? No, he barely spoke any Spanish. And he had really difficult time accessing his full rights as a Mexican citizen because he couldn't get an ID. He wasn't able for months to even prove that he was a Mexican citizen in order to access any services or rights in Mexico. I
0: think it's worth just saying out loud that I don't think the story of a veteran struggling with drugs in some way is a rare one. But if that person is a U.S. citizen, I think their treatment would be much more oriented towards going to the VA system and getting substance abuse help or whatever it is they needed. And obviously, they would stay in the United
1: States. Exactly. And the deported veterans were quick to point that out. All the ways that they were cut off. There are special programs in the criminal justice system in the civilian world for for veterans, like to help with you know, things like substance abuse disorder uh, connected to criminalized activity. Just special programs that, like, you might access if you weren't then put in in immigration detention. You also get cut off from your benefits. So in Jack's case, you know, he was, I think he was, if I recall correctly, 50% disabled from his service. So that comes with disability payments. And for years, he couldn't access those disability payments because he would have to go in person and he couldn't get into the United States. Yeah, he can't cross the border. Um, so he's not getting the disability payments, um, and that that is that is quite common with deported veterans that they struggled with getting the payments to which they're entitled as veterans in another country, and healthcare services too. Right? There's no VA in Mexico. You're not
0: giving me a lot of optimism about <laughs> the U.S. government's expansion of immigrant recruitment for the military, did you speak to anyone for whom being recruited to the military worked? And I guess define worked however you'd like, where they felt like it was a positive experience.
1: I mean, I think if we define worked in the narrow sense of this helped me pay for college, I got my college degree and now I have a good job. Um, and, you know, I'm living the, the lifestyle I was hoping to live. There were certainly um, immigrants that I spoke to who would say that. Yet, you know, there were, there were other costs and complications to that kind of simpler success stories. Even if we just expand to consider, like, physical health, One really striking thing for me was just how pervasive and normalized physical injury was in the military. In some cases, especially with the Mavni soldiers and those who enlisted, who immigrated to the United States at older ages, they would hold back from getting, you know, from seeking adequate help or kind of playing down and, and pushing through the pain even more, is normalized um, because they were worried about their citizenship and worried about already the scrutiny they faced as immigrants and why are they there and um, are they spies are they security threat and now this person is also faking an injury so that did not improve you know improve their health to not address some of the things that were happening to their bodies and it's hard to just isolate that those parts of the stories um, from that narrow definition of success.
0: Sophia, I'm really grateful for your research. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Sophia Optikar is the author of Green Card Soldier, Between the Model Immigrant and Security Threat. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you back here tomorrow.